Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. We're really thrilled to be joined by Oliver Heath and Tanya Kunstler. Um, Oliver Heath, everybody knows who are listening to this podcast, he is, he is very much Mr. Biophilia. Um, he runs um, Oliver Heath Design, a fantastic architectural um, practice, um, obviously, and he specialises in biophilic design. And I'm going to leave him to just briefly talk about what he does. As most people will know who you are. Um, at Tanya, though, thanks very much. It's the first time we've spoken. Um, your concept designer for Interface. Both have worked on this excellent guide, which is what I've got them both here. It's um, called Creative, um, sorry, Creating Positive Spaces um, by Designing for Cognitive and Sensory Wellbeing. It outlines how architects and interior designers can use biophilic design to support focused work. Um, I'm going to put a link on the journal of biophilicdesign.com. So listeners, please subscribe. Um, and um, yeah, well, many thanks for joining us today, um, Oliver and, and Tanya. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward. Great, thanks. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves, you know, where you, where you work and, and what you do, please? Tanya, maybe you'd like to go first. Yes, I am uh, working as a concept designer for Interface. Um, I'm based in Germany, working for the Dach region, um, which means Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And I'm part of the European concept design team. Um, we are like 20 people with a creative background. Um, myself, I'm an architect by education. Um, and what do we do um, in our daily life? Um, we support our customers, architects, designers, and specifiers on a project base to um, yeah, really find the perfect flooring concept for their individual project. Um, this can be a very creative um, flooring concept. It can also be just a custom color. Um, and Obviously, also apart from the project base, we keep up with trends in architect interior design just to yeah, deliver the best consultancy we can. Thanks. And Oliver? Great. Yeah, so I'm the founder of Oliver Heath Design. Uh, we're architectural and interior designers, and we were basically researchers, designers, advocates for health and well-being in the built and natural environment. And uh, we undertake a variety of different projects. So um, we uh, spend a lot of time researching biophilic design, uh, sort of evidence and research studies, and then we implement them into the designs. Uh, I'm also a biophilic design ambassador with Interface. So over the last seven to eight years, spent a lot of time uh, traveling around the UK, Europe, Scandinavia, uh, teaching architects about biophilic design. But we've also been writing a series of white papers, um, which is sort of what we have here. Uh, and so in those, we basically collect lots of knowledge and data uh, and then look at how we can implement those and make those ideas really easy and accessible. Um, and the point is to really kind of spread the word about the benefits of biophilic design, the, the kind of business case, but also to help people think more creatively about how they can bring it into buildings and the benefits it can bring. Uh, and then just you know, highlighting amazing case studies. So it's been a, a very productive, fruitful, creative working relationship with Interface that's uh, allowed us to unearth all this incredible evidence about how nature can enhance our lives and the buildings we live in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's when I when I you know, sort of come across the, um, the this guide, it is really great. I mean, you've held it up there, you know, sort of creative, creating positive spaces. 
it, it is it's a, it's a really excellent guide um and the way it's laid out and everything sort of you know the visuals within it and stuff it's really really inspiring um, and really easy to grasp as well so if there's people listening to the podcast or watching the video cast and they've they've heard about biophilic design they're not quite sure what it is they might think it's a few plants or this kind of stuff which is the classic response um but it's so many so much more you know the sort of sensory elements um you know uh textures sound um, all the visual aspects as well so um which we're gonna we're gonna chat about and talk about but i do um recommend people to to go to the journal biofitdesign.com and i'll put the link on so people can download the um the, the the guide for themselves obviously this is a guide for um architects and designers uh tanya maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the aim was behind the guide please um, actually, this uh, fifth guide already um, is part of a series. Um, we started in 2018. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Oliver. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I've lost count of the years in the past. <laughs> months, actually, I have no idea where we are. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, we have this really great series of design guides and um, they... Um, uh, yeah, they look into how our space and our how working environment specifically can enhance our well-being and at the same time also help us to be productive and um, deliver the best we can in everyday life. And um, the first guide was about uh, the well-building standard. Um, and then we started uh, to look into this biophilic theme um, in detail. Um, also with a community focus um, and all this um, uh, sits an interface in our vision um, to create positive spaces, mm -hmm. um, which means um, we as a flooring as a flooring company, we are all, all only part um, like like one building block of a, of a full um, yeah, interior concept, obviously, but um, we always aim to to not only look at the floor, but really to see the whole um, space and how it really um, yeah affects people's um, yeah well being. Um, and positive spaces means that uh, yeah space should contribute to um, the planet, so have a positive impact for the environment, but also have a positive impact on on the people in there so which means um, human center design actually and um, yeah so um, since architects and designers are, are, are our main focus group um, this is uh, yeah why we address um, the design guide to this to this group and um, specifically now the cognitive and sensory guide um, I love it um, it's really great um, I I was happy to um, present it already to some architects and they were also really um, enthusiastic about um, it 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 not only looks at um, uh, yeah our um, uh, our visual sense, which is always so present for us designers, but it really looks at all the different senses we have, and this makes it really uh, rich. Um, I mean, and why is it important really now, um, Oliver, in your opinion? Why, why, why is it really important that people you know, grab a hold of this copy and, and really grasp the principles of, of this? Well, I think when we first started this guide, we were really looking and became interested in this idea of mindfulness as a practice. And that is all about how you uh, shift the focus of the mind from worrying about the future to just being in the very present moment. And we, we recognized that this was a really important practice and thought, well, actually, 
maybe it's not just a practice, maybe it is also an approach to creating spaces that just keep people in the present moment, to allow them to sit and to focus and not get distracted. And um, of course, at the point that we kind of decided that this was an interesting subject, we didn't have any of the coronavirus issues. So at the time, we were conscious that, you know, as a global community, we were essentially being asked to focus ever more for longer periods of time with actually less opportunity to do so. You know, we're constantly being distracted. We're overwhelmed by noise, um, pollutants. Uh, we're always sort of being drawn from one thing to another. And this is, I think, very damaging for people, uh, damaging for their focus. It's damaging for their sense of uh, productivity um, and, and overall stress levels as well. Mm. So, you know, there are some quite some shocking statistics actually about distraction. Um, for instance, that 70% uh, yeah, of employees say they feel distracted whilst at work. And when we do get distracted, it can take 23 minutes to get back to being at the task at hand. And when we're constantly distracted, it raises our kind of cortisol stress hormones, which means that we kind of get, you know, quite tense. So this constant sort of issue of being um, buffeted from one thing to another, the constant notification of messages is, is really, really damaging. And actually, um, some, re some of the research that we uncovered shows that simply having an unread email in your inbox and knowing that you've got it can reduce your IQ by 10 points. And, and over and over again, what we're seeing is that, you know, we are a distracted generation. We've signed up for it. So we're willingly, you know, opened ourselves to it, but it's there and it's not at all good. And I think fast forwarding two, three years to now and the guides come out, we've got this issue of COVID and the fact that people are working at home and they're managing to you know, control their environment. But as we slowly start to think about heading back into the workplace, we've got to start imagining what they're gonna be like, recognizing that we're all under enormous stresses and strains, that we are distracted, that we are gonna to have to rethink the workplace. And this issue of, of kind of sensory thresholds and neurodiversity, I think is really important so that we can create uh, more open and accessible workplaces, places that are, allow people to sit and work and to understand the general sort of mix of people and their sensory thresholds as well and how we should be catering for them as we welcome them back in to this sort of hybrid working system. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on there about diversity, you know, diversity sensory um, overload. I mean, I didn't actually realise it takes you 23 minutes to get back to, uh, you know, when you had a distraction. I've got everything, you know, pinged off, but when I had it all on all the time, it was just, yeah, it does. I didn't realise, but it does, doesn't it? Your, your brain is, um, is easily distracted. And I think that was one of the really interesting discussion points that you have in this uh, report, you know, in this, in this guide is, you know, it's how you design to minimise those distractions to help the the users, you know, the the occupiers, you call them, you know, actually use the space and how you create an environment that's, that's going to help them, help help your help your staff to do that. And um, I mean, Tanya, obviously, there's a lot of discussion how to how to de design for like neurodiverse groups, and obviously, we all need you know different environments for at different times. I mean, what what do you think are the main challenges that workplaces are experiencing right now? Um, well, I think. Um we already had this trend towards activity-based working for uh, for quite a long time. So um, knowing that not every surrounding is exactly right at the at any time, um, depending on what you work on. Um, now this really connects to uh, the guide connects it now to to the essential um, 
inside. Um, and uh, when we think about the, uh, the post-COVID workspace, I think there are two, um, um, two kinds of, of work, yeah, work activities, uh, which are more important right now. Um, and it's, first of all, the collaborative um, part of it, because um, if you could can do your focus work at home and then you would go to the office to meet your co colleagues and to have um, creative meetings and um, so the the yeah the working space as a brand hub you know like also important to um to community communicate um and and to to have the sense of identification with the with the with your company, um, so very collaborative um, and communicative space, but at the same time, not everybody has this great, um, for example, like me, <laughs> I have this, uh, this this home office with a door I can close and I do have kids at home, but you know, like they are out of the door. And um, so, um, which, which means that some of the people, they uh, do have to go to the office to do their focus work there. Mm. So I think, um, uh, that maybe these two um, areas um, are more important. In, um, in our region, we see more and more big companies also um, introducing quiet zones or a complete floor, which is um, prohibited for, you know, like uh, mobile phones and that you, you should be quiet there. Um, and at the same time, and enlarging the areas of the um, meeting space, have different kinds of meeting spaces, not the um, classic one with one big table, but it's very um, agile and um, yeah, uh, flexible ones. Um, so I do think these, these two um, aspects are more important right now and maybe less important is, yeah, like open space, um, uh, hybrid, um, areas. Yeah. Do you, just, just, just as a random thing, do you think um, workplace, um, like the directors of companies and, and that kind of thing, do you think they're interested in, in the aesthetics of a space? Obviously, yes, they are. Um, because um, if they are not um, themselves, they are because uh, because young employees ask for it. So um, nowadays, um, people come and want to see where their office is and how it looks like. And um, workspaces need to be attractive right now. So um, you have to look at it. It's just a business case. <laughs> yeah. I think it's worth noting that you know 80% of our environments are yeah. understood through our visual sense. So I think that making that first impression is really important in the war for talent and attracting people to go into a workplace. But I think once you start to work there and you realize what the rest of these sort of sensory inputs are like, then I think those start to have a much greater effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, the, in the guide, I mean, I want to talk to you, um, obviously, Oliver, about the um, how biophilic design specifically can support sort of the neurodiversity in the workplace. And, and when I talk about neurodiversity, I don't just mean actually people who have you know, who class themselves on that spectrum, but I actually mean for ourselves as well, when we do need to, you know, go to different areas and that kind of thing. I mean, on um, on page, is it, it's page 33 of the guide, um, and I'm, I'm noting it so that it pushes people to actually download it because it is really, really good. Um, you do have like the sort of biophilic perspective and you have different um, elements, you know, you talk about prospect and you talk about the colors and you talk about biomorphic shapes. And mm. um, I mean, it is, I mean, it's really, really, it's just, it's, it's laid out very, very simply, but I mean, can you maybe sort of just touch on a couple of the points and just sort of elaborate slightly on how, 
you know, different elements of biofluid design could help in that. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, if it's okay, I'd like to go back a little bit before, yeah. maybe page 25, I can't remember the numbers actually. Uh, I'm not that clever. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that within any group of people, there is lots of neurodiversity. So generally when we talk about neurodivergent people, we tend to be thinking of people with kind of autism or Asperger's or dyslexia or some other sort of learning condition. Um, and 15% of the population approximately um, are neurodivergent, but that's probably only because they've, they're the ones that have been tested. You know, 30, 40 years ago, there would have been 0%. So the more we test, the more we're finding out about it. Now for the rest of us, it's worth recognizing that we all sit on something of a threshold a threshold that exists between being hypersensitive, which means we kind of like get overwhelmed by sensory stimuli, and hyposensitive, which means that we actually crave some stimuli. And what's really important is that we better understand that there is a whole diversity and everybody sits on the scale between being hyper and hypo. And it's much more complex than simply um, sort of character personality traits such as the ocean model or simply you know saying well they're extrovert and they're introvert because actually you can be extrovert but because you're extrovert you kind of listen into conversations so you're sort of easily distracted by some speech and so if you're an extrovert and you're working in an open plan space and someone's talking you just can't help but be distracted by it and equally i think if you're introvert you you know you'll have different thresholds for different senses it's not as if they all sit on a straight line and I think what's really important is, is that we recognize that everybody sits on a line between those and that we kind of design quite diverse spaces to, to meet people's thresholds. Now, actually, um, in our office, um, myself and one of my colleagues, Eden, did a, a sensory threshold test um, by a, a, created by somebody called Dr. Anne-Marie Lombard. And what was really interesting was that it, it sort of really highlighted the different sensory thresholds that we both have. Now, Eden is quite an extrovert, but we found that actually she was very, very susceptible and easily distracted by sound and by the visual stuff, but she could deal with the sort of haptic and the kind of uh, olfactory elements better. So she was actually quite hypersensitive. So she now knows that she's got to do something. She's got to go and put headphones on. But I turned out to be a little bit more hyposensitive. I quite like a little bit of a hubbub, a bit of noise, and I can deal with that much better. And I think that was really interesting. And essentially, you know, if you imagine you've got 100 people, you've got a designer space that's going to support all of those people, 15% of which are going to be neurodivergent anyway, but everybody else sitting on some threshold spectrum. And so the point about biophilic design, essentially, is that you've got all those people sitting on different scales. And the one thing that links all of those people together is that they all share a deep connection with nature. They've all had a positive connection to nature. And so by taking that nature first approach to the creation of spaces, you can actually have little messages or, or create spaces that communicate to each of them in different ways. And as like thriving, healthy spaces in nature that are you know, biodiverse, we also need a diverse range of different spaces. So this idea of queuing in biophilic design is really important because there are so many ideas within it that just help us to sit and focus and concentrate to help us recuperate from stress or to uh to help us to kind of uh, get back to being at our best so things like uh, non-rhythmic sensory stimuli that kind of gentle movement we see in nature is very very good and calming it creates what we call 
uh, kind of soft fascination. It's very restorative. Um, we've got sort of blue space theory about how, you know, it's good to, to bring elements of nature in. The use of colors and what we call ecological balance theory. Um, um, you know, the ideas of how we can bring in um, natural light to support people's circadian rhythms, to get them to sleep better and feel more alert in the daytime. There are lots and lots of kind of concepts and theories with underlined by biophilic design that I think are very, very beneficial to the workplace to help people feel less stressed, but also more recuperated, knowing full well also that everybody reacts well to nature-based places and, and it forms deeper connections to those places, but also the people in it so we can enhance a sense of community whilst delivering this kind of diverse set of spaces, allowing people to move from one place to another, whatever their sensory and emotional and practical needs are. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to talk about zoning just shortly, but um, one of the things I was reading in there, which was really interesting, and, and you sort of forget about it, um, you know, in, in an open plan office or in a normal office, it's all very level, isn't it? It's all very, you just, you know, you go from one place to another, you go from, you get through the door and you kind of walk into your office plan, but you make the point about nature and how you have different levels. So actually it stimulates your brain in a different way, doesn't it? It kind of takes you, it's, 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 it's not just prospects and refuge, this is about um, creating walkways and creating spaces it's sort of intrigue and you know it's, it's it's encouraging your brain in a different way because you 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 talk also about um the different senses actually um and you say there are seven senses um i mean i i mean you know like we, we all think the, the ones we know um but there are there are another two three <laughs> i've lost count now <laughs> um I mean, yeah, it's visual, visual the sight, auditory, hearing, tactile touch, olfactory, smell, gustatory, obviously taste, um, vestibular, which is the, the balance and sense of gravity, and this um, proprioception, which is the position of the body in the space de derived from sort of the muscles and, and joint feedback. I mean, that's incredibly fascinating. And when you, when you read it and you, you think, well, of course it makes perfect sense, but unless you process it and think about it as designers as an architect when you're designing a space you know you can you can get really creative I mean you know architects listening to this you can and designers you think they can just create some beautiful beautiful space including like using different flooring different flooring levels and things so um yeah I think um I think it's uh, I think it's I think it's really really interesting um I mean, maybe we could just talk a little bit about the uh, the workplace now and then sort of obviously hybrid working looks to be the sort of pattern that we're all going to be following really now. Um, I mean, you, you obviously touched on it just recently, you know, just about sort of business case, but maybe you can both just say, why should people, why should companies, in a nutshell really, why should companies be using biophilic design really right now? First of all, um, it, it's uh, a proven um, that it enhances not only well-being, but also productivity. So it's, uh, it's a business case. We have uh, the lovely Human Spaces uh, report. It's a great study um, which, which um, shows um, that you can enhance well-being by 15%, but productivity by 6% and reduce um, uh, absenteeism, is it right? I hope it's the right, um, by 15%, which is really incredible. So um, actually biophilic design um, is, is great. And when we, uh, when I said um, the collaborative um, focus of, of the workspace right now is more important, I think this community, um, uh, community uh, idea um, is, is even, uh, is, is even 
better and um, nature enhances our community, sen sense for community and we can create spaces that, um, yeah, uh, help people to to be better teams, to work um, easily together, to communicate better um, by introducing natural um, patterns, natural themes. Um, and I also think that um, the whole sensory experience um, nowadays is a great um, opposite pole to the digital world. That's why I love the design guide right now so much. Um, as now we have all these different digital meetings um, and we're also um, used to, to uh, use um, electric devices. Um, but if we want to uh, be the workplace and an attractive place to go to, um, not because the, uh, the company tells you you have to go there, but you really want to go there, um, then it, it can be great if you really have a sensory experience there, which cannot deliver a Teams meeting, for example, but you have spaces there which really, you know, like attract all your, your body and all your emotion. And so that's what I think is the most um, uh, important thing. Well, I completely agree. Uh, as Tanya mentioned, there, there is, you know, 30 years of evidence and research that demonstrates that different elements of uh, biophilic design can reduce negative costs, things like absenteeism and staff turnover, but improve building outcomes, things like productivity, creativity, and engagement with others and spaces. And I think going back to that point about you made about the senses, you know, if you imagine for hundreds of thousands of years, our senses were vital to our sense of ability to survive in very harsh, dangerous conditions. And so our senses evolved in nature. And we were always, you know, aware of the, the, the sound of a snap of a twig, you know, because that would have come from somewhere or the, the smell of rotting flesh or, or the taste of, of, of fresh or stagnant water. So all of our senses were fundamental to our ability to survive, thrive and flourish for hundreds of thousands of years. And then we've moved from rural dwellings and into city centers, and our senses are completely changed, you know, from the industrial revolution onwards. And now think about our senses, you know, we navigate through cities looking at our phone, you know, people just walk around with their headphones on. They're not at all aware, as I know every day when I cycle around the city, um, you know, the sense of balance is somebody else's responsibility. It's all about health and safety now, you know, so our senses and our relationship with them very, very different. But think of all the opportunities that we have as designers. If we were to embrace those and think, well, what does a creative space sound like? What does it smell like? And is it different to the space that you might want to sit and do focus work? How much adaptability, flexibility, how much sort of moving around do you, do you want people to have? So I think it's a really exciting opportunity. To, to recognize that, you know, uh, as human beings being part of nature, we evolved and our senses evolved in nature, and that we still have that ability to, to use those senses to create better places that are more diverse, richer in experiences, and quite different, I think, from the spaces that we possibly have at home. You know, I think what's important right now is that we do find ways of, of creating desirable aspirational spaces that offer more that draw people away from their home, from their focus work, to getting back, to putting them into a positive, open, optimistic, happy state, encouraging them to go into buildings, to meet and talk and share ideas. Because once you start talking, 
and you share ideas and amazing things can happen. You know, just a simple conversation might share an idea, a skill, a resource. And from that, well, that's how innovation starts to happen. And I think right now we need new ideas in all areas of our lives. Really, no, it's really important, you know, that's where ideas come from by through collaboration and getting together. And if you can create an environment where people are going to want to come back, you can then create those ideas. You can create the solutions for the world we're living in right now, you know, um, which is in which is in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in, the, in the guide as well, you, you have um, uh, two case studies. You talk about the LinkedIn design, um, sorry, LinkedIn offices in uh, in Paris. Um, and, but also the Allegro building um, in Warsaw, I think. And um, I mean, they're re both really quite different. The, um, the Allegro uh, case study, there's lots of plants. There's quite, it's quite soft. I, I mean, it's a sort of place when I was looking at the photographs in the, in the guide, I think actually, I really, I fancy, I would love to work there. That's somewhere I'd love to go. The LinkedIn place, not so much, interestingly. It seemed quite sort of, it's quite geometric and, and slightly harder. And, but, it, but you can see the biophilic design elements in it, which I found really, really, really intriguing. Um, I mean, maybe you could sort of just talk about um, that because in, in both of those, and this is one of the important aspects, I think, of the guide is, is that you do um, you, you stress really about the importance of zoning areas. I mean, and you've, you both spoke about it, about how we both, we all, we all need, you know, different areas for different types of work, you know, whether it's collaboration or quiet work, focus work, encouraging creativity and collaboration and things. Um, I mean, maybe you could talk about either, you know, both of those um, case studies or, or would like to focus on one. Uh, well, I think what both have in common is that they uh, really show um, great uh, the concept of the cognitive and sensory approach um, that you have those um, areas where there is a lot of communication going on. There is buzzy spaces and very lively and we work with um, different colors, with bold colors, with contrast, with a lot of things going going on um, and then you know like it gets calmer and calmer and then you you end up with those uh, very uh, nice and you know very um, uh, calm spaces um, only reducing to the to very limit, um, limited um, sensory input maybe I can uh, say something to the LinkedIn one um, uh, which might be the uh, yeah, more difficult one to, you know, like link to, but um, what, what I really like about this one is uh, the local flavor. Um, it's a very French, um, French taste there, I think you can see it in this, um, in this uh, cafeteria space in the, in the, in the meeting area, uh, which, uh, which has the idea of a French bar and, and we, uh, and they work with um, hard surfaces. So you can really imagine it's, it's quite loud um, there, I guess. I have not been there, but I guess so. Uh, but it's very typical for a French bar. So it has this local flavor. And um, there is also an, another one showing some um, glass uh, walls and there's also some visuals on there which are very French and um, so um, I, I really do like this um, aspect of, of, the, um, of the project because I think always think a local flavor is, um, is always great. I like that I saw the um, Parisian lady on the, on yeah. the glass panels um, yeah lovely you're saying, like you're saying the sort of uh, local local taste kind of like anchoring it in a, in a space kind of thing so yeah what about you Oliver what, what are you what's your take on these? Yeah, I, well, I think what's clear from both of them is they've taken this very human-centered approach and uh, try to understand that sense of diversity 
of sensory thresholds that exist within these, you know, quite large sort of work groups. And then use that sort of understanding to implement a series of quite diverse spaces that offer people quite a lot of choice, recognizing that some places want to be more lively, more stimulating through all the senses, not just the visual, but also the way they sound, maybe the, the way they smell through the offer of sort of coffee or fruit juices, or maybe different plants and, and sort of sensory inputs, but also the haptic quality uh, and, and the kind of sense of balance that, that one needs as one moves through the spaces across different surfaces. And so what the spaces show, you know, when look, sort of thinking about the, the Allegro ones is the initial kind of high threshold spaces, are buzzy, they've got bright colors, there's lots of kind of like things going on, it's it's kind of more uh, chromatic, you know, blacks and whites and, and shots of green and other shots of color. And then as you move from these high threshold spaces through to the medium threshold, they start to become a little bit calmer, there's places for people to sit. You can have conversations, but there's also little rooms where you can go off to one side and have a little sort of, you know, uh, online call. Um, so it's offering people a little bit more choice to limit some of those sensory uh, kind of inputs. And then it moves right through to some of these much more calming, focused spaces, whether it's just sort of places for sort of one-to-one -one meetings that use natural timbers and natural materials, which we know reduce heart rates and blood pressure levels, but also these, these kind of very wonderful, calming recuperation chill-out rooms that actually sort of cut back all the colors. They're just very dark, they're very calming. You can control the lighting levels uh, and uh, the kind of the input with blinds. So there's lots of things to interact with. So that opportunity to have choice, but also adaptability and flexibility. You know, if you've just been staring at a screen and your eyes are feeling really exhausted, just turning the lights down, uh, closing the blinds and just listening to calm music and reducing that, that amount of uh, kind of visual stimuli, the acoustic stimuli, you know, lying down and kind of changing your body posture. Um, it's really interesting to see that you can actually quite easily go from high threshold to low threshold. And it doesn't need to be that complicated. It's really about understanding uh, people's different physical, um, mental and emotional and practical needs throughout the day. I think that's, you, I mean, you, you've touched on the, that point, you know, there's, you've got these three different sort of levels, really, the high, the medium and the low sensory thresholds, and um, which we didn't actually sort of discuss at the beginning there, really. But um, again, people are listening. If you go to the guide, it's, it's really it's put in a really um, simple way. Um, I think it's around about page 42, 43, that kind of thing. Um, but, you, you know, you do you sort of talk about the visual comfort and acoustic comfort and the tactile comfort on each of these different thresholds. And you give ideas of how you could create those different zones within a workplace. I mean, even if you've got quite a small environment, actually, you can still create three different very you know strategically placed zones that will encourage people to move around as well um but you know to, but to create i mean you just make it really really simple for people I, I i found i think it's a i think it's a really really excellent guide i mean i really do it's like a kind of one-stop shop for for biophilic design for architects you know it's a good place to start you know to start learning and um and to kind of grasp it. and also for taking it to people who are trying to persuade, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the guys with the purse strings, you know, I mean that guys and guyesses, um, guys as in, you know, sort of mutual multi-gender kind of <laughs> thing. But um, I mean, is there, I mean, anything else you'd like to add? There's one thing I do want, would like to talk about actually, just, just as a thing, but we can then talk about whatever it is you'd like to talk about. Um, you, one of the things you say is about sound. 
how you don't just put sound like you know just don't have it coming from like piped randomly but you could create you know you you put sound maybe low down or maybe high up so as you're walking through a space it actually feels more like nature you do get like you know bird song like you know the little robins around your feet and then you get you know even like birds in the sky or whatever or you get raindrops and clouds and you know the sound of water but to create that um stereo system really i mean I, things that you probably don't you know people don't think about but if you've got the opportunity everybody's got like little ipod things and little tiny things you could create a really beautiful zone and um, the people could control themselves as well you know so um but yeah i mean that, that was one of my things that i kind of i, I was really excited about actually in this i think that, that that idea of of thinking much more carefully about our acoustic environments is really important and and it can happen in part about the materials we have you know whether we've got you know LVT or carpeting on the floor will soak up the acoustics uh, or, or make them more live. So thinking about those acoustic zones, I think is interesting. And, and I, you know, when, often when we talk about acoustics, it comes down to how do you stop it being so noisy and jangly? But then you can also go beyond and take, well, what would a biophilic approach be? Well, of course, nature is never silent. Yeah. Uh, and if it is, you know, something's wrong. You know, so basically if there are no birds tweeting and there's nothing going on, something, something is up. So. You know, we, we like to kind of think, well, how would sort of nature create a space where you feel happy, calm, and relaxed? Now, I was in Japan a couple of years ago, um, and there was working with a company there who had created this sort of multi-level, three-dimensional acoustic system, where basically uh, at ground level, you could hear water. So they put, they put speakers under the desks, and you could hear water coming from the ground. And then like, as you sort of walked around, you're like, birds, I can hear birds coming from up there. And it was really interesting. It was just sort of very simple sort of, two-layer speaker system that as you moved around the space, sat down or stood up, you've got different sort of frequencies or volume of that. So I think what the guide starts to suggest is that we can play around with sensory inputs in a much more creative way to create more diverse experiences, which of course more diverse experiences give more choice, but it also creates much richer general experience of architecture rather than just thinking, you know, here's a room, you all sit in it, you do a good day's work, and that's it, you go home. But, you know, we're going to need to work harder than that if we're going to be um, hoping to attract people, to retain them, to, to keep them being productive and creative, and, and to make sure that um, people feel that their needs are being met. Mm, absolutely. And I, and I think this is really a, a great um, example that um, by the biophilic approach is so generic because um, it's just natural it is our um, heritage um, so all of us uh, respond positively to bird sounds for example and i think um, i do have a positive response to my favorite music and oliver has as well but we might not have the same favorite music and so on and so but really it's like this this biophilic design um, concept um, they they bring us all together um, because it's just natural that's lovely. Um, I mean, really sort of on that then, um, sort of the final question that I ask everybody on the podcast, and um, Oliver, you've already been here. <laughs> so, but if, if you'd like, I don't know, Oliver, if you'd like to have a give us an update on how you'd, you know, as, as a kind of, in a magic brush of biophilic, what would a biophilic design workplace look like? Well, I'd like to sort of maybe reframe my answer, because I probably spoke uh, about this last time. But I think, what is really important is that we, we consider the needs of, uh, of a diverse workspace and diverse workforce as well. So, so giving people choice and option 
remembering that essentially as human beings, we evolved in nature, our senses were key to our survival, and our senses are still key to our experience of space and place and the way we react to them. So giving people choice, uh, giving them diversity, giving people flexibility and adaptability is a slightly different shift on how we should be applying biophilic design principles rather than just saying it's all about shoving a load of plants in there. It's much more about those spatial experiences and how we translate and communicate those and give people the opportunity to be happier and healthier by, by feeling that they're close to nature uh, in the many spaces that, that, that we live and work in. What about you, Tanya? What would be uh, what, would, what would the workplace look like for you um, if you could brush brush any any workplace, every workplace with a magic <laughs> brush of biophilia? What would it look like? Well, obviously, the, the ideal workplace would be in nature, actually, to you know, like spend your um, process outside. Um, I would also allow um, dogs and other um, animals in the in the workplace. Um, I would love to do that. And uh, and and then obviously everything um, Oliver just said, you know, like really um, play the full um, opportunities um, biophilic design um, is and and. Uh, yeah, obviously, it's, it's just a lot more than just plants. And um, I, uh, I personally, my, my uh, favorite sense is the, um, is the sense of, of touching. What is it? Uh, it's the help me tactile, the tactile one. Um, so I, I would love to use a lot of different um, interesting materials, natural materials. Um, and uh, yeah, because I think we're also tired of all these um, surfaces not natural and slicky and you know like so that would be my my perfect uh, biophilic place thank you for listening to the journal of biophilic design podcast